This episode of New Politics was recorded on the 19th of October, 2021, and produced on the land of the Wangal people. Welcome to the New Politics Podcast. In this episode, we look at climate change, climate change and climate change and what it means for this federal government. I'm Eddie Djokovic, editor of New Politics. I'm David Lewis, rhythmic gymnast. Scott Morrison has decided to go to the COP26 climate change conference after all, announcing that it is an important event for him to attend and history is determined by those who turn up. This all seems at odds with his previous stance, and although he didn't specifically rule it out, it seemed to be very unlikely for Morrison to attend COP26, and it was going to be left to other ministers such as Maurice Payne, Angus Taylor and Susan Lay. Australia's policies on climate control and emissions reductions are ranked among the worst in the OECD community, and there has been great pressure for Morrison to attend the COP26 meeting, and for Australia to adopt far greater climate change policies. What are the reasons for this change of heart from Scott Morrison? When the Queen is able to shame you into a position, that's not going to play well with Liberal voting electorate. There are still a lot of people who are monarchists. There are still a lot of people who may not be monarchists, but think the Queen does a decent job, who vote for Scott Morrison. He doesn't care what the Labor Party thinks. He doesn't care what the left thinks. He doesn't care what the Greens thinks. But he doesn't want to lose those votes that are becoming more and more crucial for him each day. Prince Charles gave some comment essentially expressing his surprise, I think, is the fairest way of putting it, that Australia wasn't going. And then the Queen was far more forthright. And this, I think, has forced Scott Morrison's hands. He's thinking he probably won't lose votes because even if you were a climate change sceptic and a monarchist, and these positions exist, seemingly contradictory positions or seemingly incompatible positions given both the Queen and uh, Prince Charles's uh, public stance on the environment. Although, of course, it's the office, not the person that you're necessarily supportive of too. It doesn't look good to be shamed into it. I think that's the main reason he's going. I suspect he's looking for every excuse he can to get out of it. He can't even use the 14-day quarantine because Dominic Perrottet scrapped that coming into New South Wales, provided you're double-vaxxed, which we know Morrison is. I think the only reason he is now going is to appease people. As we discussed in our last podcast, the News Corp media has decided that climate change is a thing that should be looked after. I think there's a whole lot of other things going on in the background there too with relations with the National Party and things like that. But certainly a lot of the things that Morrison supports, the monarchy and News Corp, have basically told him he should go. So he's going, apparently. Well, that support that he's getting from the News Corporation newspapers, well, that's giving him cover. So that makes the, well, initially that reluctance to not go to COP26, that makes it even a little bit more confusing. But as it stands, this is still only a decision for Morrison to attend a meeting overseas. That's about it. But Morrison 
I'd say that he's still determined to go through that low action or no action process on climate change. And he's probably likely to continue that smoke and mirrors approach, such as Tony Abbott's direct action plan, which was introduced in 2013, which to this day, we still don't know what it was actually for or even whether it existed or not. We also know that Morrison is the master of spin and obfuscation. He'll deny the things that he's clearly said or claims that he's been misrepresented. And he's the classic don't do anything that he doesn't have to do type of prime minister. He's also a retail prime minister. And as we've discussed on the podcast before, that's the worst kind of politician telling people what they want to hear rather than what needs to be done in the national interest. And I've also noticed that his latest process is to focus on the cost of climate change. Morrison knows that he can't probably win the debate on positive action against climate change. And there's been eight years of inaction and denialism from his side of politics. And they've received massive political gain from their stance on climate change and it's a tall order to go from that position of total denial and inaction on climate change to a totally different position where they're trying to implement something like a net zero policy by 2050 or emissions reductions by 45 percent by 2035 so what does he actually do? He focuses on the cost of climate change. During the week, he showed research to his cabinet that once people are told about the cost of climate change mitigation, that if it's $500 per year, that support for climate change actually drops dramatically within the electorate. And I don't know what this figure is. He mentioned $500 per year. That's a made up figure. We don't actually know what it represents. He could have actually made up any number at all. He could have said $1,000 or $2,000 per year. We have to remember that this is the political party that said the town of Wyala was going to be wiped off the map and lamb roasts were going to cost $100, all because of carbon pricing. That's the sort of idiotic message that these people want to put out. So it looks like Morrison is going to go retail on his attacks on climate change policy. And I'd say that this action or giving that information to his cabinet suggests that he thinks that support for climate change action is actually soft. And we can see that Morrison is now going to go low on climate change policy. Tony Abbott once did say that climate change action is a little bit like a goat sacrifice to the volcano god. So maybe this is where Morrison is heading as well within his political messaging. What the coalition is good at is winning elections. They're not much good at anything else at the moment, but what they can do is win elections. And they do that by looking at what worked the last election. Uh, I don't think we'll see things like Captain Get Up again. I don't think we'll see as aggressive a campaign as Tony Abbott ran again. Partly Morrison too is a different person to Tony Abbott. So none of this is criticism per se. What I'm talking about here is they're very good at analysing what worked. And one of the things that they were able to do, and it's actually a thing they do quite a lot, is sow the seeds of doubt. In a sense, they're very good uh, advocates for reasonable doubt. The legal training comes through in trying to put that doubt into a, a jury's head as to whether things can be as they seem. Now, $500 a year seems like a lot of money till you realize it's about $10 a week. Now, for a lot of low earners, $10 a week is a lot, but for a lot of low earners too, some of that will be offset by savings in other areas. So there's that. Of course, Tony Abbott did promise $500 or $2,000 off your electricity bill every year or whatever figure it was. Never happened. In fact, it went on. 
Morrison said in Parliament that under the coalition, electricity prices have gone down. Probably his because he doesn't pay them at the lodge. I don't know of anyone else who's said to me, oh, yes, I've got cheaper electricity this year without swapping providers and getting those three-month deals where they go down for a bit and then they shoot up to a bit more than you were paying before. And that happens a lot. So, again, it's about throwing so much out there that people lose the train of the message. But the underlying message is that the coalition are caring about the environment and are doing things about it and are looking at your back pocket and are bringing prices down, that it's nonsense. Well, you're absolutely right when you say that the coalition are very good at getting into government. And since the Liberal Party was formed in 1944, they've been in government for 70% of the time. And I think since Federation, non-Labor forces have been in government for 68 or 69% of the time as well. So they're actually good at get, getting into government, but they're not very good at being in government. And the skills required to actually get into government are actually totally different to the skills that you, that are required to actually be a good government. And I guess we've seen more evidence of that over the past week. The National Party, that's one part of the coalition, they've said that they're very unlikely to support a net zero target by 2050. All of their MPs and senators have ruled this out, and they've been the most vocal opponents of any action on climate change, well, pretty much forever. And I'd say that if they do support whatever Scott Morrison is putting forward, it's more than likely going to be in return for more regional funding. And more regional funding for the modern National Party means more poor barreling more corruption and more useless infrastructure programs that benefit their vested interests so if the nationals do agree to scott morrison's proposals if he does put anything forward at the cop 26 forum they'll be asking for billions of dollars for funding for pet projects train lines that go absolutely nowhere things such as clay target clubhouses that benefit absolutely nobody maybe even a who knows, like something like a Sydney Harbour Bridge type of construction that goes from Western Sydney all the way up to Barnaby Joyce's seat in New England. So we can see where all of this is going to end up. More of the same inaction on climate change, money being rorted and misused and ending up in the pockets of donors and vested interests. Ronnie Salt, the independent journalist, for want of a better term, she doesn't describe herself as that, mentioned, and I thought this was absolutely correct, that when... National Party talks about regional issues. They're not talking about farmers and towns and those concerns. They're talking about the mining industry. And I think that's absolutely correct. And part of the reason that the National Party doesn't want too much to be done on climate change is because it affects mining. And I, I discussed the lack of agility and creativity in Australian business, including mining at the moment. Within its own parameters, they're quite agile, I should say. There's all types of new technology going in. But that's to cut labour. It's not to cut emissions. It's not to cut the manufacture of coal. And again, when we talk about mining, we're really talking about coal and gas mining. We're not talking about zinc and lithium and, and tin and iron and all the other stuff that gets mined here. The, the big player is coal mining. And then when you look at how little coal mining actually adds to the economy, you realise we are being led by people who are basically forcing a rump government where the resources and the energy and the time is being shoveled into a small part when there are much larger parts of the economy that they're trying to shut down. Tourism, 
entertainment, education, the knowledge economy, which Australia should be very good at, is being undermined, pun only half intended, for older forms of industry that really any benefit we get from, we lose because we export it and then buy back the product. If an alien came down from, you know, the planet Jupiter, <laughs> they'd laugh themselves silly as to how this works. Of course, it's no laughing matter, but that's, this is where we are at the moment. You're listening to New Politics. You can subscribe to us on Apple or Google Podcasts, listen through SoundCloud, Spotify and Amazon Audible, or find us at newpolitics.com.au. And you can now follow us at Patreon. There must be some kind of way out of here Said the joker to the thief There's too much confusion I can't get no You referred before to Morrison being shamed into going to the COP26 forum. Now, like you, I still won't believe it until he actually does go and I see it happening. Prince Charles did say that he was shocked that Morrison wasn't planning to attend and he warned of catastrophic impact to the planet if ambitious action isn't taken. The Queen said that she was irritated about inaction. She said, don't just talk, act on climate. And Morrison is a monarchist, as you alluded to before, so maybe that's the main reason why he's going. But he is in a bit of a bind here. It was a strange reluctance initially. It was almost like not wanting to go to the League of Nations after the First World War. Prime Minister Billy Hughes was there and featured prominently, or a Prime Minister deciding to not go to the Breton Woods Conference or United Nations meetings towards the end of the Second World War in 1945. Now, you can't imagine a Prime Minister at that time saying, oh, look, you know, I'm too busy to go to that meeting. I don't want to do hotel quarantine anymore. I don't want to sit on a boat or or on a plane to travel there. A Prime Minister would be there in a flash, and that's how important this meeting is. One other consideration is, and it, get, it does get back to local politics, the people at COP26, they don't vote in Australian elections, and nor does anyone else who is a citizen of any other country. It's only the Australian citizens who vote in Australian elections. Now, well, that's pretty obvious, but I guess we just have to point that out in the context of what we're discussing. And I can see that Morrison, he is a Prime Minister that would use that nobody tells us what to do type of mentality. And he'd also be talking about, oh, well, this is all unrepresentative members of the United Nations trying to tell Australia what to do. And that might be an angle that Morrison will try to push. We've also seen those billboards shaming Australia posted up at the Glasgow conference we've we've also seen them in Times Square in New York we've also seen some advertised in Australian cities as well but I guess my question is does shaming Australia into action overseas does this have the possibility of backfiring because I'm thinking of well the Bob Brown anti Adani campaign in Queensland that that really upset the locals during the last federal election in 2019 that had the feeling that these are people coming in from interstate telling us what to do they don't know what the local issues are and if they do well we just don't want outside telling us what to do. I know that there were a number of other issues in Queensland during the 2019 federal election, but many of those seats that were targeted by 
Bob Brown and the anti-Adani campaign, they had 15% swings towards the government. So this process of shaming Australia or shaming Scott Morrison into action might require a bit of a balancing act, but it's quite possible that Morrison will use this act of shaming into a political advantage for himself. It will work against how dare these foreigners tell us what to do. And the Queen throws in an interesting because, again, not all, but a lot of these people are monarchists, and I'm not going to criticise that position. But it will see that cognitive dissonance of foreigners telling us what to do and the legitimate supported head of state being Queen Elizabeth II, etc., etc., telling Morrison what to do. I suspect we'll see a little bit of tilt towards the recalcitrant French and the Germans and other countries telling us what to do and how how dare they. Very similar to the whole Brexit thing in Britain where it became this whole issue of we're being controlled by foreigners when in fact Britain had a very, very large say in what happened in, in the EU. But the perception was is that laws were being passed and policies were being presented that had nothing to do with British input. And I think this is how they will probably shape COP26 as this notion of foreigners who won't be defined very precisely because they don't want to ruin relations further. And they probably may not even use the word foreigners. It'll be things like unknown diplomats and committees with the dog whistle being foreigners trying to stop us. I think that's the angle that will be played. And I think if Morrison goes... Someone pointed out that it will probably kill a November election, and one of the reasons that he may have been reluctant to go was so he could call an election, which he won't while he's overseas. The other thing is is that Australian prime ministers can do very well overseas. You mentioned Billy Hughes in uh, going to the peace conference in Versailles in 1919. Now, he made a big noise, but nobody doubted that he had the best interests of Australia at heart whether they agreed that his best interests were the same as their best interests, or even if they were, whether he was presenting them properly, and that was the types of issues. There was a little bit of working-class snobbery there because he'd come from a very working-class background. But he did manage to make an impression on the rest of the world. The other one who springs to mind, of course, is Julia Gillard, who was asked to do a lot more than what she turned up to do, joining committees, sitting in on meetings, asked for advice on this matter and that matter, and very much impressed nearly everyone who spoke to her. I think that's one of the reasons they hate her, because when Tony Abbott went across, he didn't present anywhere near as well. And Scott Morrison, the president of the United States, who'd sat in meetings with him, couldn't even remember his name. Now, admittedly, Boris Johnson is a very flamboyant figure, but still, I couldn't imagine him forgetting John Howard's name, for example, or even Malcolm Turnbull's name. So with the politics of climate change, there's still that idea that there might be a November election. There's quite a few people within politics who maintain that this is still on the agenda. I still can't see that happening, but as we always like to say, anything can happen in politics. I still think that it's going to be in May next year. Whatever the case is, of course, there's still a federal election coming up sometime soon. But based on what we've seen recently, we can see the pathway for what the political parties are going to do in the lead up to the next election. For Labor, the message has to be narrowed down and simplified. If people want climate change, 
like Labor, and I'd say probably hope for the best, Labor hasn't released any policy on climate change, just saying that they'll release it closer to the election. So we can't say whether it will be better or worse because we just haven't seen anything. And we also have to remember that Labor does make a lot of noise about climate change, and we've pointed this out before that every election since 2001, Labor has turned up to that election campaign with climate change policies. So they do make a lot of noise about climate change, but not too much action. And, well, I guess they haven't been able to do any action since 2013 because they just haven't been in government. But Kevin Rudd in 2009, he declined to hold a double dissolution election on climate change. He was advised to go and do that, but he decided not to. He ended up being removed as Prime Minister a year later. Julia Gillard did introduce carbon pricing. That was actually quite an effective mechanism in reducing emissions. But that was in partnership with the Greens during the hung parliament between 2010 and 13. They also introduced the mining resources rent tax on non-renewable energies. But that was a watered down version of what was originally proposed from the Ken Henry review. So we can't say whether the Labor Party would have introduced those programs if it wasn't for that hung parliament. But at least they were in place. And it's far more than whatever the coalition has done on climate change. But that's their key message. Keep it simple. If you want action on climate change, vote for the Labor Party. And for the coalition, Morrison will just try and make it as messy and as complicated and as complex as possible. Pushing that message probably that if you don't understand it, don't vote for it. The anti-climate change message has been politically beneficial for conservative forces in Australia and they've latched onto this as a classic divisive distraction. If people are talking about different sides of the climate change debate, that distracts the electorate from other matters such as poor economic management, low wages, growth, poor rollout of the vaccination program for example and for me this climate change debate over the past eight years it's been like an extension of the culture wars engage in history wars or other material that occupies the electorate and keeps the heat off the government but the problem here is that climate change is now a big issue you can't use a divisive climate change debate to distract from climate change because that's going to be one of the key issues leading up to the next federal election yeah prime ministers of course always try and control the message so do op- leaders of the opposition. I think some things, though, go beyond what the Prime Minister can do. As I don't think Morrison is a terribly agile or deep thinker or even a smart thinker, I can see the possibility, and I'm hedging my bets here, and you know, the, the Morrison supporters who listen to us, and hello to you all, welcome and join the conversation. The Morrison supporters are saying, you know, oh, yeah, you're hedging your bets. There's a part of all of this stuff that nobody can predict, but I can see it that um, he's going to lose control of the narrative. I don't know if Labor will be able to take control of the narrative too, because I think the narrative will probably work outside both of them. Again, we've got another very interesting election campaign coming up and nothing is certain and nothing is safe and all of the rules that we used up to about 2013 don't work anymore. So all we can do is wait and watch and keep talking about it as it happens, I guess. Well, one thing is for sure that we're probably heading towards a climate change election similar to 2007 when Kevin Rudd said that it was the greatest moral challenge of our times. Similar to, if we want to go back 31 years now, similar to the 1990 election where Labor slid back into government on the back of environmental preferences. Australian Greens didn't actually exist there, but there were a whole suite of 
smaller environment parties that push their preferences back to the Labor Party and they managed to win the 1990 elections. So climate change was a big issue in 1990, for those of you who can remember that. It certainly was a big issue in 2007 as well. And of course, during any election campaign, there's a whole range of different issues that do affect that election campaign. There's the economy, there's all sorts, there's health, there's education, but climate change is becoming a bigger issue. But If it is such a big issue, who wins the campaign? Labor could make it a perfect campaign if they can dovetail eight years of incompetence in so many different areas into inaction, corruption and incompetence on climate change. So these are the factors that are coming up. But if the campaign is all based around climate change, who wins out in this situation? When you said that Labor will bring in climate change, it won't be an easy process because, of course, there are... The inner city, and we've mentioned these before, the suburban labour and regional or rural labour. And rural labour includes people who work in the mining industry and who are worried about the future of their jobs. This needs to be managed. And it may need to be managed that targets are slowed, KPIs are adjusted, compromises made to make sure that the party stays as united as it can be. We've mentioned before the notion that the Liberal Party may split. Labor has split in the past, 1917, 1956. It may split again over these types of issues. I suspect that the management in Labor, at least its frontline management, that is the cabinet, are perhaps better placed to um, manage this stuff than the the Liberal front bench. But it's not just the front bench that has to manage this stuff and, and the leader. It is the numbers people behind the scenes. It's the branch members. It's while the environment will be probably better under Labor, it won't be an easy process. And I guess the thing is, is to think about what you're prepared to support between Liberal and Labor on matters of the environment. I think it's definitely Labor, but it's not going to be uh, the day after the election we will wake up to a brand new green Australia, and we have to remember this. That's it for this new politics podcast. Thanks for listening in. If you'd like to support our style of journalism and commentary, please make a donation at our website at newpolitics.com.au. We don't beg, plead, beseech or gaslight you about journalism coming to an end. We just keep it very, very simple. If you like what we do, please send some support our way. It helps keep our commitment to independent journalism ticking along. I'm Eddie Djokovic. Thanks for listening in and it's goodbye to our listeners. I'm David Lewis. We'll see you next time.